You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com, and we are the children of the 80s. It creeps me out. Welcome back to Lunchtime Movie Review. We've got the children of the 80s back. We're back again to review a movie from our childhood. I'm Matt. I'm Cubert. Sancho. And I'm Patrick. We're here to review the classic John Carpenter's Halloween. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by the Rabin Red Lounge. Are you a chain-smoking nurse who likes to kick back after a stressful shift? Then mosey over to the Rabbit in Red Lounge off I-25, just 15 miles south of Russellville. The Rabbit in Red Lounge, where you'll have a killer time. And don't forget to tell them that Lunchtime Movie Review sent you. All right, our movie this week is the classic, the immortal, the slasher flick to end all slasher flicks, Halloween. I think that was the introduction of the other two horror movies we've done. <laughs> <laughs> Friday the 13th. But, but this time, it's, it really <laughs> this time matters. It. <laughs> this time it's personal. Until, until we review Psycho, that is. <laughs> and here's the story that's told with in Halloween. Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think you'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. And totally charted. And just talk. Sure, sure. sure. Mm-hmm. The only reason she babysits is to have Our story begins, as all good stories do, with two horny teenagers getting busy in the living room. It's Halloween night in 1963, and these two teenagers are being watched by some peeping Tom. The creepy music, along with the Brady Bunch Hawaiian Tiki Idol theme, tells us that something bad's going to happen. The peeping Tom walks in this house, and the teenage boy, like all teenage boys, is only good for about two pumps because he's finished and leaving the house. Our peeping Tom dons a Halloween mask, and now after seeing Revenge of the Nerds, I'm pretty sure it's just Lewis looking for a waterbed-filled room, but this mask-wearing dude has something other than raping in mind. He walks in on the nude girl who recognizes her little brother, Michael. But Michael's got a knife and starts hacking his sister. Michael walks outside, knife in hand, where we get our first look of our cold-blooded killer, six-year-old Michael, in bright clown outfit and Victorian collar. Fast forward 15 years later to the day before Halloween 1978. We're introduced to Dr. Loomis, Michael's psychiatrist. He and a nurse in typical non-slutty nurse gear is going to drug up Michael for some sort of a hearing. We learn from Dr. Loomis that Michael has been institutionalized for the past 15 years and is pure evil. He can't be redeemed and the worst thing that could ever happen is if Michael's able to be free. But I'm sure that won't happen. But wait, they pull up and inmates are literally running the asylum and Michael is able to escape. Dr. Loomis is sure that Michael will return to his childhood neighborhood and the scene of his first murder. It's now Halloween day, and we are introduced to the girl from Psycho's daughter. You know, the hooker from Trading Places, the mom in Freaky Friday, 
No, not that one. The one with Lindsay Lohan. She has absolutely no connection to Michael that we know of, until Halloween 2. Her dad's a real estate agent trying to sell the old Myers place, and JLC drops off the key. Unfortunately for her, Michael is at the house and catches a glimpse of that not-yet-butched-out feathered dew, and Crazy Mike becomes fixated on her. The rest of the film is filled with a masked, clad Michael uh, messing with JLC and her slutty friends. He appears in various places to be seen deliberately, and then disappears. On Halloween night in this odd little town, all the parents leave their kids with babysitters, and JLC and her friends take to babysitting throughout the neighborhood. That's because they're swingers. While JLC's friends take this opportunity to whore it up, Michael takes the opportunity to do a little killing. He kills JLC's friends and then turns on her. Apparently, being crazy also causes bad aim, because Michael stabs at her but isn't able to connect. JLC fights back with anything she can find, except the knife she finds up with, twice. She stabs him in the neck with a knitting needle and stabs him in the eye with a hanger. Finally, she gets the knife back and is able to kill Michael by stabbing him in the chest. It's finally over, Michael's dead on the ground, and JLC is finally safe. The end. But wait, this resilient killer pops up for one last fight. But this time, Dr. Loomis, who has been on Michael's track all night, finally catches up with him. But unfortunately for Michael, Dr. Loomis is packing heat. He empties his gun into Michael, causing him to fall out of the window to his death. Finally, Michael is dead. Until, that is, we look out the window and see that Michael is gone. The music continues, as does Michael's reign of terror, which results in six sequels. Part 3 and the Rob Zombie Crap Fest don't count. That is Halloween. Alright, so, um, 1978, Halloween comes out. Patrick, what well, it's in the theater at the time. What's going on? It came out on October 25th, 1978, which is the time of year to bring out a horror film, but it's kind of surprising that they only brought it out a week before Halloween, or roughly a week before, to capitalize on, you know, kind of the people wanting to be scared. Uh, other films that were out around the same time were Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke, The Wiz, Days of uh, Heaven. The Wiz is very scary. That, that was frightening. That was very, very frightening. And uh, Midnight Express, which is scary in its own, in its own right. For okay. drug dealers. Right, and people going to prison. <laughs> well, how, how well, I mean, big was this film? How successful was it? Well, it was the eighth highest grossing film in 1978. It made about $47 million, and then it went on to make $60 million worldwide. Uh, that's about equivalent to about $203 million today. So for a horror film, it was was a huge success. Uh, um, it was the third highest grossing of the series. Um, the only two that were higher grossing were the uh, remake by Rob Zombie and the uh, H2O film in the late 90s with where Jamie Lee Curtis came back finally. What was your guys's, what's your guys' memory of this film as a kid? Do you have any strong reaction to it in, in remembering it as kids? All I can tell you is when uh, Sancho was a young man, uh, his parents were divorced and his dad lived and worked in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And so we would uh, fly out there for the summers, me and my two older brothers. My, my oldest brother uh, was like 16, and my next brother was 15, and I was like 12, 11. Anyway, uh, we would uh, stay in old San Juan during the day while my dad was working, so we would end up going to these like really seedy kind of B-movie theaters where we would watch like a whole lot of you know, third-run chop-socky movies with uh, Jackie Chan and you know, the Shaolin Woodmen and stuff like that. Anyway, my brothers took me to go see Halloween, and my uh, my middle brother placed me next to this huge, uh, I can only assume like a Haitian refugee, or I, I don't know where she was from, but she was speaking like a like patois or or pigeon, you know, or something. 
And um, the place was packed and with tons of people screaming at the screen and uh, just shouting and during the suspenseful moments. Anyway, this lady's digging her acrylic nails into my shoulder and, you know, screaming, uh, you know, Santeria prayers and stuff like that. So I was mortified, man. I, I mean, I was damn near pissed myself. So I, every time I hear that Michael Myers music chiming in, even as an adult, you know, I, I'm, I regress to this, you know, young boy being attacked by voodoo woman in the theater. Right. The, the flop sweat starts and... Uh... <laughs> and your the heart starts pounding. I I got to tell you, my I love scary movies as a kid. I love slasher flicks as a kid, and uh, particularly Night, Nightmare on Elm Street was one of my favorites. But I still remember as a kid this scaring the shit out of me. This was yep. the one movie that legitimately I was frightened of as a kid. And part of it might be because of how young I was and and. In, uh, when I first saw it, and I didn't see it in 78, I probably saw it three three or four years later, but I would have only been maybe seven years old when I first saw it, and it affected me probably more than any other film. Yeah, this this put the zap on my brain. This and, and The Exorcist are two films that I still have a hard time doing at night by myself at home alone. Uh, it's one of those things where you flip by if it's on cable, but you got to go back to it, and then you pull it, you know, you got one hand over your eye, and all that but th- this is a, a long-lasting film just because it's such a good movie yeah i would say uh I, I agree with both of you i saw this and probably on hbo when i was very young probably in the early 80s and uh the music alone is is really terrifying and even now when i go to you know haunted houses like in high school we went to you know not scary farm and in, in la uh, they would have a maze and they would play the Halloween music and just the music alone being in that environment is is scary. You know, it's funny you say that just about the music because I played it, I started watching it last night and my my wife was in the room and she kept, all she would say, like I said, she was in the room doing something else or was in, in another part of the room and all she would say is, I hate this music, I hate this music. And I say, what, is it annoying? Are you, are you, are you annoyed? She says, no, I'm scared. And my daughter walks by the hallway and she comes in. What are you watching? That is creepy. You know, without any connection to the film. So so they do a great job with the music. And I think it's interesting as to who, you know, who did the music. Yeah, John Carpenter did it himself. I mean, he's, he's a somewhat accomplished musician in his own right. And he did the music in a lot of his earlier films. And... Um, interesting story on this one is that he, when they filmed it, he had a rough cut with no music, showed it to a, an executive at a studio who said, mm, it's not scary. And, you know, it had no interest in the film. Then after it was released, after they added the music, she came back and said, it is a terrifying film. The music makes it. And I, I agree that the, the music is just overwhelming. You know, and the, and the thing that, that's cool about it, too, is it's much like the movie. It's just simple. Like it, like when he's, you know, when he's hunting her down Jamie Lee Curtis, that bomb, 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 bomb. It's just so stripped stripped down and just like, you know, just visceral, you know, just kind of. Well, you think of like terrifying music, you know, of our childhood and growing up. You put this up with, you know, Jaws, Twilight Zone, Psycho. It's all, I mean, it it came to that status. Now it's definitely recognizable and it evokes emotion. Yeah, but the the, the music was awesome, man. And and it was just, it's just scary. I would say that um, he put it in there in a lot of key places, I think for two reasons. One for the suspense, but I think, too, for the people that aren't very um, alert, he kind of lets you know, hey, something scary is happening. Right, and, and they yeah. and they carry it through where, it, towards the end, where 
or he's down or you think he might be gone or you, you think you might have conquered him or whatever the music stops for a period of time so you're like okay it's over we're safe the music isn't playing just don't play that creepy music anymore yeah and there's there, you know the thing that about halloween though is uh, watching this again i really liked it I, maybe i'm premature on on weighing in on how i feel but the even the things that are are noticeable or the little flubs and stuff i'm willing to overlook those you know the pj soul's monkey face you know all of those things <laughs> i'm willing to overlook it just because i love this movie any re- any just initial reactions or, or thoughts about just the story generally well the story is very simplistic i agree with chris kind of as how everything is so simple but it's done perfectly um the music is simple the story is simple it's very straightforward i mean we know much about Michael Myers and, and the backstory of him late, from the later films, but you don't know any of that. He is just a killer who's returned home and he's going and he's killing people in that area, you know, around his house. And I think that's what's effective. That it's just it's there's no rhyme or reason to what he's doing. But starts even before that though the for me the opening sequence where you, you've got the the point of view shot, which I think is really well done, but then. When they pan out and show this tiny little kid who just hacked this girl up, is a pretty disturbing image, and it's I think it's ripped off later in Pet Cemetery, for example, and uh, and even Breaking Two, Breaking Two Electric Boogaloo, which has an <laughs> is an homage to that absolutely. You know the 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 thing too about you, remember I was talking about some of the flubs and things that you're willing to overlook. The the viewpoint of Michael as a child is is like the height of an adult. And, you know, if you look at it, he's not, the eyes are tracking up upstairs, but they're like adult size. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Height wise, right? Yeah. And you kind of overlook that because, I mean, you don't really notice it until somebody points it out to you. Right. And the, the hands so, are uh, an adult female's hands. You look at the nails, they're uh, kind of glossy and very well manicured. Well, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe, yeah, but it wasn't, you know, in 1978, weren't children fancy lads? I mean, he's got that Victorian <laughs> he collar. That's the Victorian <laughs> collar. So maybe they just you know, maybe maybe that's what made him crazy. You you put a kid in that outfit for Halloween and he's going to lose it. I may dress like a clown, but I don't feel like <laughs> laughing. Right, <laughs> but I'm angry. <laughs> that is a weird that, outfit. That weird outfit. That actual opening sequence up until the reveal of it being the kid. I don't like how they did that. What, which which part? When they finally take off his mask and they're like, Michael, what did you do? Just kind of everyone standing around. It just. It just seems so artificial at that point, and that scene just bothers me. The rest yeah, of the film see, is great, and I love it, but that scene just bothers me, and I don't like it. The see, entire I, opening I, sequence? No, not the entire opening sequence. I don't mind because the peeping, it, the peeping Tom stuffs, the peeping Tom stuffs, pretty good. Oh no, all good, all good. It's just when they pull off his mask and the kid's standing there with the knife, and his parents are surrounding him. It just looked too artificial. Uh, Composure-wise, I think it's really well done. But, yeah, I remember as a kid going, man, that's fake. Just coming off, panning back. He's standing there with the knife. You know, yeah, out. no very, one's really very moving. They're just, yeah, they're just staring. They're not like, reacting. How about, how about you see a bloody knife in your kid's hand, you yank that out of his hand. <laughs> right. Well, and back to the uh, outfit. When did clowns stop with the big balls down the, down the side? You just don't see that enough anymore. I think they should bring that back. I'm not sure if he's a clown or a harlequin, <laughs> which is like a whole different argument altogether. But before your shot, Jason, that you don't like, that first shot that they do going into the house is a very, very long shot and evidently very complex to do because they brought it in close to the window. 
then they back out a bit. They go to the handy cam and go around the side. And then I like when they point up to the window and the light goes off and they give you the, you know, the Brady Bunch music. And then they pan around to the side. So, yeah, it, it does kind of fall short with what Jason's saying. But then as far as motivation and they, they set up, okay, this guy's crazy. And you have the, the doctor character who announces for the rest of basically to, to set the stage that uh, he calls him, what, the devil and pure evil. And so there's no question this guy is not redeemable. There, there's, there's, there's nothing to be salvaged here. He's just a, you know, an evil, evil guy. I love Dr. Loomis in, in this film. I think he is by far my favorite character. I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. And the fact that he was trying to treat this boy who hasn't talked in 15 years and, and, and redeem him, he has gotten to the point where, Matt, you, you nailed it, where he says he is pure evil, there's no redeeming, there's no locking up. Now that he's gotten out, the only thing I'm here to do is to kill him. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is such a powerful statement coming from a doctor who's devoting his life to helping people. He's got a, yeah, he, he went to anatomy and physiology, he went to everything, but he missed the part about treatment plan. Oh, 38 revolver, there we go. Sancho, you were talking how you don't really see this as a as a really a classic slasher film, but more of a it's a suspense film. I mean, the way they set up all the shots, how they introduce the the character, how they take him out. They, you know, he has this kind of human slash supernatural vibe to him, where they don't have to spoon feed it to you. Unfortunately, all the movies that follow it, Friday the Thirteenth, Freddy, all these other kind of ripoff movies, they have to spoon feed you. Be scared now. Don't be scared now. Where Carpenter just leaves it out there, and it makes it so suspenseful that you know you're left to your own to wonder where the hell this guy's going to pop out of. Right, that scene where where Jamie Lee Curtis and her friends are walking home, and they they show that long shot of the road. You're wondering where it's coming from, and then they show him pop out way, 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 way down there. And now for the rest of the time, and then after they pass that spot, you're waiting for something to happen, and the fact that it doesn't come. Is about is, is really more effective than if they would have done a cheap jump out shot. Well, and, and John Carpenter said his inspiration for this this film was not your typical horror film, but more in the line of what Alfred Hitchcock made, which was mainly suspense. That you know he he's telegraphing you what's the danger is. The question is is when is it going to come out and finally kill someone? And you know and that he does it more effectively. There's very few you know jump shots where something suddenly comes out of nowhere. Everything in this film is that you see Michael Myers coming. You see him in the background before he kills people. It's just you know that getting the audience to say, "Why don't they move? Why don't why don't they turn around? Why don't why don't they get out of there?" Because you know they're unaware of the danger. And or in, in my, my in my experience would be, "Don't go in there, girl. Don't go in there." <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite shots is when Dr. Loomis is speaking with the sheriff outside of the hardware store 
where there was the break-in, and it, the, the camera's focusing on Dr. Loomis. You can see the street behind him, and you see the station wagon that Michael Myers is driving, wearing the mask he just stole, uh, drive by, drive behind him. But what I love about it is the camera doesn't focus on it and spoon-feed you that. I notice it's the station wagon immediately from the front behind them, and it's just such a great shot to let the audience kind of participate in seeing uh, the danger and not really focusing on it. Yeah, and he, and he, and he does that uh, a number of times, but he also plays with the viewer because he gets you locked into dialogue. When, um, when Lori and uh, Annie are walking down the street and uh, she sees – Michael Myers down the street and then looks up again behind the brush and he goes back into the bushes and then she tells her friend and her friend you know does that trick on her and as they walk forward uh, I think Jason pointed out to me that there's two crew members popping up on the on the porch of the house they had just walked by and I never saw it before that and then you know I'm watching it with my kid and he hadn't seen that either and if when you go back and look at it it's so obvious but John Carpenter has you so drawn into the dialogue of these characters that you're not looking for Michael at that time. You're listening intently to what they're saying. Even the way they did lighting and stuff, one of the best scenes in the entire film is towards the end where Jamie Lee Curtis is, she's in the house and Michael Myers is in the doorway behind her and they slowly light up his mask. Uh, Their intent to kind of convey to the audience, this is your eyes getting used to the dark and he's standing there right next to her the whole time and you know, right before she walks away and then he comes out and stabs at her for the first time. I mean, that... I mean, that's the, the epitome of suspense there. You know the danger's there. It's not going to jump out and surprise you. It's just this this slow reveal of what is there right behind her. Now, I think ter- Jamie Lee Curtis is good. You know, she's pretty good. But the other kids, the other friends, their acting's terrible. And I, that they stand out as being very bad actors and actresses. Dude, don't, don't, don't you blaspheme me on some monkey face. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we are going to tangle. The PJ Stoll's character, when she read the script, she told John Carpenter, "This is the dialogue you wrote is not how the kids talk." And he says, "Well, talk how the kids talk," and that's why she keeps saying "totally" throughout oh. this entire film. And it's just it it becomes ridiculous. Uh, I want to bring up the point that Patrick was mentioning that other movies are are real deliberate and laid out but this this one left a lot to the viewer it's not insulting in halloween or halloween does not insult the viewer by telling you how you should feel or when you should be scared because donald pleasance he's such a good actor that he you know here he is he's a therapeutic guy who tried to get through to this kid for eight years and then you know he knows now that he's just evil incarnate and so he knows that he's got to extinguish this threat and so you visibly can see that that dude is scared and because he's so believable, you become scared because you know the potential that this guy's got. Right. Well, yeah, and- I like you pointed out the end scene where he he's shooting him. Kind of the you talk about the good acting or the effective acting is is one of the things you pointed out that you most people would probably miss that highlights how scared this guy is of Michael. And I think that's yeah. highlighted in the in the film with people who react to Dr. Loomis. When you look at the sheriffs who are interacting with him, it's not that they full-on believe him, but they're not totally dismissive of him either. Right. He, like, tells, he tells the sheriff, the sheriff's like, what do you want me to do? You know, he's so convinced. He says, you know, if you, if you go lights and sirens, cop on every corner, he's going to hide and, and he's going to know. And then he says, have them keep their mouths shut and their eyes open. Sancho, talk about that scene at the end with uh, Dr. Loomis. Yeah, so we were looking at this uh, movie the other night, and the idea that Loomis is is completely terrified by this guy—that he, you know, he's a professional therapist 
who knows that he's got to do what he's got to do. So he's packing heat. He shows up in town and he's ready to smoke Michael Myers. In the end, he is uh, when he engages him, they have that volley of, of bullets. He shoots him and he turns around the corner and there is Michael Myers, which I think is a pretty scary scene, you know, grunting. And then he unloads on him and he dumps six bullets into the chest of Michael Myers. And even after Michael Myers flies out the off the uh, balcony, Dr. Loomis is still cycling the pistol. Click, 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 click. Because he's he's totally engaged in tunnel vision. He's like in in you know ex- extinguished threat mode. Generally, in this genre of movie, later in the movies to follow, they don't do anything. They cower and they panic and they you know the lip quivers and then they get smoked. Where Jamie Lee Curtis is terrified. You know she does a good job of acting. She stabs the guy with a knitting needle. And that's a monster oh, knitting needle, man. Big ass needle. They don't make them like that. That's a 1978. Right. Movie. Slinghoffer. They don't have those any longer. So so anyway, she's not just this victim, but she she acts out, and then Donald Pleasance unloads a gun on this dude because he knows the potential of what this guy's capable of. And this, it's interesting there. They they do kind of do this shift from this is just a, a crazy dude, but he's human. He's not supernatural. But then they kind of make him supernatural by virtue of all the different you can't kill this guy even after a stab in the eye a stab to the neck six bullets a knife stab to the chest this guy's still up and and running because he you know is completely detached from reality and he has no concept of the pain that we have he has no idea of you know what is normal and what's acceptable he's just a killing machine right and and friday the 13th takes that to another level and says well if the crazy people can be like that so can the artards yeah, and I don't buy it. Friday the Thirteenth. What wasn't wasn't the mom the killer? In the first one, yeah. Come on, like she's gonna get under Kevin Bacon's cot and drive an uh, arrow through his neck. Well, this and this film does crazy right, whereas Friday the Thirteenth does crazy ridiculously. That's because the mystery of the character in Friday the Thirteenth they took it too far to try to give motivation to the killer. I think it's it's better and scarier the way they do in this one. You don't know why Michael Myers wants to kill. He just is a killing machine. He's just going to kill. I mean, the later films kind of ruin it by trying to give motivation behind what he does, that right. he's going after his sister. Well, and for a more in-depth review of Friday the 13th, see a uh, prior podcast. So do we want to talk about the uh, virginity test and the, uh, what, the commentary on virginity in, in this film? I don't think John Carpenter was making any kind of social message to promiscuous teens. I think what it was is he needed some dialogue to pick on our heroine in this story is just a a normal girl. And they pick on her a lot because she's not a hoe or whatever. Like, But it's almost over the top where they're almost bullying her. Yeah, she's got some really great friends that always are giving her crap about what she's not doing and how she's studying. And I, I, I can't understand why her, uh, she hangs out with the other two girls. Right, because she doesn't really fit in with that group, right? This is not a person like, oh, yeah, we all have the same interests. No, you're whoring it up, and she's over there studying and wants to be the good girl who's babysitting and never goes out and can't find a date. you got to have her around because when you run out of money, you know that she'll pay for you. That's true. Exactly. But that's not just a dismissed thing, right? This idea that the virgin survives and the whores uh, and those who are sexually promiscuous die. It's, it's interesting because the film was accused of being a film for the conservative agenda when it was originally released in 1978. Well, that, that does make sense because John Carpenter is a member of the Tea Party, isn't he, Jason? Yeah, he's about as left as you can get. Yeah, it's an outrageous statement. 
Yeah, but in the film, everybody who has sex or is sexually active is killed by the killer. And Jamie Lee Curtis, who arguably is very you know repressed, is the only person who essentially survives um, Michael Myers. And you know, John Carpenter has dismissed that, saying that you know that that's not what it was about. It was just a scary movie. That the film is more about a revenge of the repressed, and Jamie Lee Curtis is repressed, just as Michael Myers is repressed. And in no way, shape, or form is it a Christian right morality employ. Well, and I also read that Jared Carpenter said really the, the, the reason they added the boyfriends and the sex part of it was more than anything to distract them. Whereas she was alone and she was alert, uh, where she would, would be aware and be able to get away. And, and rather than, than what you said is uh, that, that it was a punishing the, uh, the promiscuous. But, but that idea, that concept, as you said, has entered into convention and Hollywood convention and horror uh, movies as well as just pop culture uh, generally. Yeah, you, you know, see it th- throughout the rest of the slasher films of the 80s where you can typically identify who's going to survive the film because they're the ones not having sex in it. And and it's actually made fun of by the time you get to the Scream films in the 1990s. You know what? I think that it, it creates opportunity for Michael Myers. You know, they show more than one time he is watching people in coitus interruptus and he is like confused. And he's looking at it much like he looked at the guy that he stabbed up on the wall. He's just a voyeur, and he doesn't understand it. So it's like two things. Number one, because he is a child in his mind, yet he's a killing machine, he also doesn't understand sexuality, and it, it leaves people vulnerable because they're in a vulnerable position, and they had to get him there some way. You know what I mean? Because if you look at all the other slasher movies, it's always, it's always the same thing. There's a noise outside. They go, who's out there? And they walk out there. And, you, and then they get killed. So this gave opportunity, I think, more so than any moral. Yeah, question. I agree. And they give you two victims instead of one by having the boyfriend-girlfriend character there. But what about the kill scenes? What, what, what was your guys' take on those? Uh, yeah, I mean, as far as being bloodless, they're again, they're pretty graphic because you're seeing the faces. When Loomis is strangled in the car, that lasts quite a while. And it's it's disturbing on that level. You know, I don't need to see the blood spurt out and get all over the place. Just their facial expressions and kind of the death struggle they're going through of, of fighting for their life is is good enough to be terrifying for me. Right, and, and, and they had, you're, they you're had me, to, Nancy Loomis, right? Not Doctor Loomis. Right. N- yes, Nancy Loomis. Right, and and you know, it kind of is this different idea of gory, right? Go- and maybe gory is not the right word, but you know, generally, and and you saw that with Friday the Thirteenth, with it being very bloody and graphic. This is graphic as well in a in manifested differently, right? Well, this this is pre. It's kind of like horror movies now have the CSI effect. People watch them now and they they go, that's not realistic. It right. wouldn't really look like that. And you know, when people do get stabbed, when they get cut, oftentimes they don't bleed. They don't spurt like they make them do in, in most of these movies nowadays. And you're, you know, the blood. So your is victims, very low. your victims haven't don't spurt blood usually. Sometimes? I said most, <laughs> not all. Don't lock me into a story. <laughs> Yeah, the other uh, the other striking killing scene is Monkey Face's boyfriend down when he pins him up against the wall with the knife. I I see what they're going for. I wish they wouldn't have done it that way because that made me go, all right, um, you know that the knife is really going to hold him. But I do really appreciate the shape's reaction of what he did, how he kind of tilts his head, of kind of, huh? <laughs> yeah, I guess that did work. Didn't no, see that happening. Yeah. Y- 
Yeah, I thought that was one of the most frightening images in the in the film is watching the, the uh, Michael Myers's reaction to looking at this body pinned to the wall. You know, is it just that he's almost admiring his work? It's just kind of like, wow, that looks really good. <laughs> yeah, like a piece yeah. of art. And it goes to the and it he, goes to the crazy. Yeah, and he is freakishly strong, and that's what's so cool. He's fighting a, a supposedly seventeen-year-old guy, more realistically, twenty-eight-year-old guy. But he reaches up with one hand, he pins this dude to the wall, and then he jams that knife all the way through to stick him to the wall. I I thought it was pretty cool. Right, but and he he is a big dude, man. I mean, he's an imposing just figure, and that that with the mask does make it fairly pretty terrifying, really. Now you you talk about the the classic body reveal, right? Which is a uh, has become also a uh, a convention, a Hollywood convention. And we talked a lot about the end scene and, and the how Jamie Lee Curtis reacts and finally fights back, and and he's a resilient killer that never goes away. But as we're watching this last night, and we had a group of people that were kind of in and out uh, from various scenes, and I was just struck with the reaction we got from the people that were watching. I mean, this was a visceral. We got we got literally screams from multiple people that were watching it, and I think it speaks to the to the power of the film. Yeah, you talking about the in-studio party we had? Yeah, we kind of did have a little in-studio viewing. Didn't yeah, there was. A, I think there was like 125 people when I lost. <laughs> yeah, that that was pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, um, the the reactions were were pretty interesting though, right? Yeah, people were terrified. The music itself pulls people in, and then they're like, "I got to get the hell out of here." And, and then at least two or three people literally screamed and jumped uh, on on a number of scenes, and I even did. <laughs> <laughs> at the uh, body reveal where the, the, the guy comes flopping down. I, it shocked me. I wasn't ready for it, and I didn't remember it from the last time I'd watched it. You know, the new horror movies are just so blatant, and it's like they cut people's heads off just to let them let you see that. Michael Myers set up this kind of, like, booby trap with dead people. God knows why. But, it, man, it was just really effective, and, and it all was, you know, kind of seamless when she goes in there, and then and then it's on, and then that just represents the whole, the, the beginning chase of the rest of the movie. Yeah, that's what I think they could gain from looking at some of these old films, and some of the even newer films that done well in the theaters. Uh, we talked about Halloween being an independent film. Another one that did well that was another independent film, and at least in my mind, is the Blair Witch Project, because they built on the suspense, the the building up to the, the finales, and, and and both do it very well. I, I love how Halloween does it, and it seems like uh, not a lot of movies that come out of Hollywood these days can do the suspense. They just go right for the gore. And the interesting thing is that when you do suspense right, uh, it, it can be done over and over. If you look at Blair Witch and you also look at the uh, paranormal activity, those two films, it's almost like carbon copy, but they've built the suspense. And again, you're forced to look at the entire frame of the film and you're waiting for something to come out. Right. And just over and over, you're drawn into the suspense. Yeah, it's funny you bring up paranormal activity. As I have noticed, that I haven't seen the film, but in, just in the advertisements, you, I see myself looking everywhere in the screen and that is that is pretty creepy just in just in the uh, trailers that they're that they're showing for it so yeah that definitely is very halloweeny i guess well what about like the production value I mean, what does this thing cost to make how much does it cost to make this movie Three hundred twenty-five thousand. So they they made it very cheap, and most of that was spent on the camera equipment and the uh, development of the the film. That John Carpenter wanted to make sure that even though they were doing it on the cheap, it looked like it was expensive. And like yeah, I, I had heard that he only got paid. He said, "Pay me ten grand, and then I'll get ten percent of the take." 
Well, and he was smart enough that he said, you know, I'll I'll take a lower salary, but I want it to be John Carpenter's Halloween. You know, that he was going to put the director's name in front of the title, which is how they used to do it in the old days. And he he wanted to make sure that, you know, if he was going to do this for almost nothing, that he would at least get credit for it. Well, one of the things I don't understand with the original script, again, titled, you know, The Babysitter Killer, they change it to Halloween because they don't want to uh, have this story take place over three days. They just rather have it one day to cut down on costume costumes. And, right. And, and the costumes changes. Which, which the actors brought themselves. Right, which like, the actors or, bought themselves. Yeah, but Jamie Lee Curtis and her high-waisted J.C. Penney dockers or whatever. Well, you have no idea when you're going to be shipped out to sea. Right. <laughs> But they cut it down to one day. One of the things that is just troubling – no, well, not really troubling, but I just can't figure out is originally it's supposed to take place in Illinois. Obviously, they film it in Southern California, and you know, there's that story that they have one bag of leaves that they keep reusing in all the shots because the leaves don't die and, and fall off the trees in Southern California the way they do, the way they do in the rest of the, of the country. But if you're already changing the script, why not just make it Southern California? I mean, I grew up in Southern California. To me, it looked like Halloween in Southern California. It's believable to me. Why did they do that? I think I, I think possibly because Southern California is, is somewhat unique in that they don't really have a change of seasons, but in most of the places throughout the United States, is there is a dif- distinctive fall, fall. winter. Right, but, but Sancho, you even talk about the pumpkins in this movie. Yeah, I'd read that they um, they since it wasn't pumpkin season and obviously they were in uh, Pasadena or whatever, they had actually relied on using misshapen gourds and squash, and either that or the pumpkin is just entirely fake. And if you look at the pumpkin that's on the um, terrace in the first scene when Michael goes to kill uh, his sister, it, it looks very kind of fabricated. Mm. All right, let's uh, break this down. Again, as I said, I was scared to death of this film as a kid. And watching it again, it is very effective. Uh, by and large, I liked all the, the classic 80s slasher films. The three, uh, what I think are the Mount Rushmore of, of horror films, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and Halloween. I, I like them each individually for different reasons. But in watching this again, I, I do think this is the... This is the best, uh, the best of the three, as far as scary, uh, as far as even storytelling, and everything else. I think it absolutely stands the test of time. Yeah, I like the film as a as a kid. It's it's classic to me. I mean, obviously, I already talked about the music. I definitely think it holds the test of time. There's some dated dialogue in it, you know, with P.J. Stoll's totally, totally, totally. But I mean, you can't suspense. And, and fear of the unknown, fear of the unstoppable, fear of evil, that's timeless. And the way this was done and the way it builds up, I think it was it's a great film and uh, definitely my favorite of the, of the three that we reviewed for Halloween this year. Let me chime in on this one. This movie scared the hell out of me when I was a kid for obvious reasons. And I think now looking at it as an adult, I, I've been able to uh, really get into this movie again. I love this movie. I mean, I, I didn't know how much I actually like this movie. I'd seen it a bunch of times on um, on VHS when I was a kid, like every Halloween, and I thought everything was supposed to be blurry. I thought, you know you know what I mean? If you see something on Blu-ray now that you saw 20 years ago, it's just amazing to see now what it actually looks like. So, scared me to death when I was a kid. Still startles me now. Love it now. I saw this probably in the mid-80s. Uh, I came to the Halloween franchise pretty late. 
Um, I know at that point they had at least made the first three films. Uh, I don't think they'd gotten to the fourth film. And when I saw this, I was I, I remember being slightly disappointed in it as a, as a kid because I was stuck into I want to see gore. I was really into the Nightmare on Elm Streets and Friday the Thirteenth, um, the later versions of them. But it was weird in the '90s. I, I went back and rewatched this for the for probably the first time since the '80s, and I really started to like this one far better than that because of what we talked about—the suspense, the kind of the build-up. Even though there isn't a lot of gore to it, there isn't a lot of jumping scenes. I really, really enjoyed it. It, it had. It was a film that I could rewatch over and over again and get kind of a thrill out of it. Where the other ones with the gore, once I've seen it, it, it loses its effect. Um, it's a film that I watch every year. In fact, uh, I agree with uh, Sancho that seeing it on uh, Blu-ray, I got the Blu-ray a couple of years ago, and I couldn't believe how clear it was and you know how and how well it, it really does stand the test of time. I think it's a film that is just as effective as it was in 1978 as it is today. So I do think it stands the test of time. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about is the body count um and this film is five people and two dogs is that correct matt yeah that's my that's that's what i have i watched it and, and kept track and and i confirmed it online good old wikipedia so yeah f- seven uh five people two dogs and it goes so, to show you john carpenter hates dogs man <laughs> he I mean, does between this and the thing he's must have killed like 10 of them so our final tally is what? Friday the 13th, 10, Halloween 7, counting the dogs, and Nightmare on Elm Street 4, I, 3 or 4? Yeah, it was, it was, that was the lowest of, of all of them. In and by today's standards, five people being killed in the film isn't really that big of a slasher film or a graphic film. You usually kill a lot more people than that. So. And, and you know what? And to add on to that, if we compare the ending of Halloween to the other films... The, the endings of Friday the 13th with Jason popping out of the lake where it could be a dream or with Freddy driving off, with the kids driving off in the Freddy convertible, that could be a dream. Here, I love Halloween's ending of when Donald Pleasance looks down wanting to see the body of Michael Myers and he is gone. That to me was truly terrifying. It still sticks with me. The best ending that you can have to this movie. They absolutely just nail it and that music starts when he sees the body gone. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up, Jason, because that's exactly what I wanted to bring up. Is to me, again, as a kid, that was the most terrifying scene because it's the idea of this guy is still out there. Incredibly effective. As a matter of fact, it was. Well, this is the last of our, uh, at least, Halloween films. This will do more horror and aren't going to be bound to necessarily just the fall to do horror films. But uh, these are the, uh, for, for me anyway, the three quintessential slasher films from the 80s. Check out our Facebook page, Lunchtime Movie Review. There's a lot of really good clips and scenes and extras that, that you don't see on the on the website. Check out the website for blogs and polls and other content. And send us a comment and keep listening. We're getting out of here right now, and you guys are invited.
podcast is not endorsed by Falcon International Productions and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Halloween, all names and sounds of Halloween characters, and any other Halloween-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Falcon International Productions or their respective trademark and or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.